Welcome back to Career Compass, a podcast from SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management, and the SHRM Foundation. Career Compass prepares future leaders today for better workplaces tomorrow. As the voice of all things work, SHRM supports students and emerging professionals with advice, information, and resources for every step of your career. Designed for the student or emerging professional, Career Compass delivers timely, relevant, and critical conversations about work to help you succeed in your career journey. I'm Vernon Williams, and I want to thank you for joining us for this episode. And I'm Erica Young. During this episode, we're going to talk with the co-founder and DEI specialist at The Rise Journey and head of learning and organizational development at Quartet Health. We'll chat with her about how now more than ever, HR plays a vital role in developing people-centered strategies that lead to both organizational and employee success. With that being said, let's get started. Erica, I don't know about you, but I'm excited about today's discussion. We get to dive into some really big real world issues and talk through how HR employees are legitimately capable of changing the world. If you ask my three-year-old son what daddy does for a living, he'll tell you, and I quote, make the world a better place. And today is we're going to get to touch on a lot of that. So what are some of your thoughts about today's show and how things, you know, kind of are playing out in the world? I'm pretty excited as well. I think it is a big topic, certainly, now more than ever. So dramatic, but so true, right? A lot's changing right now. And truly, now more than ever, we're seeing a spotlight on HR, on people and talent professionals, I think, in a way that we just haven't seen before. And Vernon, part of today's conversation is about the ability for employees to bring their whole selves to work. And when we say those words, I'm kind of curious, what do you think about what comes to mind? There's a ton of stuff that comes to mind. I know we, we started talking a little bit about this kind of in our, our pre-discussion chat, uh, but really for me as, a, as an individual, it's about the fact that I am, I'm a father, uh, I, I am a, an athlete, um, I'm obviously a, an employee, I'm a African-American male, and so there's a lot that comes with that. But I, I specifically want to kind of drill down on on that kind of fatherhood piece, particularly as we think about, for many of us, what it's like to be returning to work. Uh, and so for me, uh, and as an employee at SHRM, uh, we were fortunate enough to be uh, at home uh, kind of until the beginning of March or so. And at that point, folks had to had to return. And I was really nervous because my son is not back in daycare. And what does all of that sort of look like? And so I, I was telling my dad, you know, I was my dad's probably not the person you go to if you're trying to vent. But, I, you know, I was I was going to my dad. I was like, Dad, I can't believe I, you know, I'm, I'm being told I have to come back to the workplace. What about my son? And his kind of response was like, hell, yeah, you need to be back in the workplace. It's not your employer's problem. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I kind of was like, OK, all right. You know, I finished the conversation up with him. Uh, and then, you know, fortunately, I, I was able to to extend that a little bit longer. I think Sherm was able to to work out an agreement with me that uh, we were able to do kind of like an in the office for a week, out of the office for a week sort of thing so I could still see my, my family. But all of those elements are things that HR professionals are dealing with and things that I guess, you know, in this example, my dad being from a different generation probably is not considering that. And so you're, you, we've got everything on that spectrum from in my case, again, family support and what that looks like to my dad, who's like, you know, not the employer's problem. And that's Mm -hmm. all got to be navigated and managed in the workplace now. So that's really what I'm excited about talking through and just one. And I know so many more things that we're going to get to with today's guest that, you know, is part of, of the workplace now. Absolutely. I think that's a really good example. Um, And as you were chatting and, you know, sharing your story, which thank you for sharing that story. I think that's really relevant for a lot of people, myself included. I was also thinking about what for me does showing up to work, you know, authentically and safely look like. And I will say that now more than ever, uh, (laughs) I wonder how many times we can use that phrase on the show today. Um, I will say that now more than ever is unique for a lot of reasons. I've, I've talked before, you know, especially during the mental health episode that I do like struggle day to day with anxiety. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, I have, I also have struggled with some like kind of ADHD type symptoms and between the two, it does make work challenging most days, you know, and it was challenging even before the pandemic. But Mm -hmm. 
more recently thinking about what it looks like in a workplace where, you know, there's some fear about general safety, right, with COVID-19 in the workplace. And then um, also just kind of generally being concerned of how things are changing for business, how things are changing for people, both myself and the people that are in my life, right? It's just a lot. It really is. It's a lot now, truly now more than ever. But I think that's why we're focused on it this episode, right, is to explore what the unique challenges and, you know, positives even, if we could say, of now is, especially with that HR lens. So with that, I do want to transition to our awesome guest, um, who I know has a lot of great thoughts about how HR professionals are contributing to a better world. So I'm thrilled to introduce Jess Osro. She's the co-founder and DEI specialist at The Rise Journey and head of learning and development at Quartet Health. Jess is known as someone who gets stuff done and has the energy of four people excited. Um, As head of learning and organizational development at Quartet Health, Jess empowers organizational culture to be inclusive, diverse, and promote equity for all employees. And then as the co-founder of The Rise Journey, she works with organizations to create empowering organizational culture through equitable HR practices built on the foundation of diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and accessibility, uh, which we're going to probably hear abbreviated on this episode as DEBA, just a heads up to everyone. Jess puts theoretical people ops ideas into scalable best practices. And in addition to being uh, SHRM SCP certified, Jess also earned an advanced diploma in managing workplace diversity and inclusion from New York University and her Bachelor of Arts degree in theater and arts from McDaniel College. Jess, we are so excited you can join us. So excited to hear your thoughts. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited and just based on the What you two have mentioned so far, there's already so much to dig into. There really is. Quite the intro. Uh, But to kind of kick us off, I think it would be helpful for some of our listeners to hear a little bit more about your career pathways and and your journey from a BA in theater arts management to several positions in human resources to the work that you now do with inclusion. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you arrived uh, at this point and why you're so passionate about this work? Yeah. So when I started in college, all of my mom's friends asked her, why would you dare let your daughter get a degree in theater arts? She's never going to be able to do anything with that. And <laughs> the, I always laugh at that. And it has stuck with me because my foundation in technical theater and not, not an actress, you can't get me on stage. <laughs> I, I hate public speaking. I do it occasionally. But my background in technical theater has actually led to, I would say, the majority of my successes in HR. It's a foundation of you know, people management, of time management. If you've ever had to deal with an actor with a misplaced prop, you know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> you have to deal with all the technical pieces and connecting the director to the costume designer to the sound guy or girl or person. It's really you are the hub of everything that's happening, and that's how I view HR. And in terms of getting here, um, I actually started my kind of first real-world job in New York City as an executive assistant to the CFO of a sports tech startup. And we got along great and built trust really quickly. And one day he said, hey, I want you to run payroll. Here's everybody's social security numbers and all the payroll information Mm. and gave me the login information and said, have at it. I expect you to run this every two weeks. And I said, oh, crap. Like, what? (laughs) I am 23. Don't give me anybody's social security numbers. And from there, it really developed. And once I had everybody's information in the palm of my hand, so to speak, I was really able to see and dig into what was actually happening. Where were there Mm -hmm. inequities or not inequities? What was happening in the offer letters that would go out? And why were there differences? What were the nuances? Um, I was able to start an intern program there and had 125 interns over nine months. Just bonkers when I think about it now. Awesome. And the fact that I was doing diverse hiring practices to to recruit underrepresented talent without knowing what I was doing because I went in and said, sports affect everybody we need to have all viewpoints in our internship group. Mm -hmm. And so thinking back on those things and reflecting back on those pieces, you know, somebody trusted me with a whole bunch of really personal information 
And I'm a very no BS, no nonsense kind of person. And so I dove in and said, like, what the hell is going on? What the heck is going on? <laughs> you know, why aren't things done a certain way? And in, in my mind, the proper way in the equitable way. And mm -hmm. how do I change that? And every job sense, I stuck with HR because it can have so much impact. Because whether it's a singular person or through consulting a number of different organizations, the impact you have is life-changing. And Vernon, mm -hmm. thinking back to your work you know, with HR and you know, getting some flexible leave and flexible work schedules, what was the impact on you? And I think about what was the impact to your family, to your son, and amplify that by ever, however many employees SHRM has. And then thinking about on a global scale, what does this look like when we look at the policies on a broader scale? But I can relate all of that directly back to my technical theater background. I love it. I love when seemingly totally separate experiences end up actually being the greatest experience or stepping stone of experience to to the next opportunity. And I also have, I would call a nonlinear background. And I totally believe that it's one of my greatest assets, actually, to be able to pull from very unique experiences. But it's interesting that you mentioned actually like 23, probably very soon, you know, out of college and you're handed here to run payroll. We actually hear that so much, right? And I would say more so probably, you know, 10 or so years ago before HR really became I think the career path that it is today, we heard a lot of people kind of just fell into HR related roles. And payroll is a great example of how people were kind of assigned this new sort of HR specific role. And I would say, of course, like even just 10 years ago, you know, businesses probably didn't value HR to the degree that they do today. So we've seen a lot of growth in the HR industry even just in how we talk about it, right? HR, I think, used to, and to some extent today, it still is called a cost center um, versus a revenue producer, revenue generating uh, department. But I'm curious to get your thoughts because it sounds like you started there, right? You started where like HR was kind of just known as like running payroll, doing comp and benefits, and, and now it's turned into something much bigger, I think. I'd love to get your thoughts on what that progression has look like for you? Totally. So I'll go back to that first job. It was my first formal job out of college, my first full-time role. I remember going to the CFO who is to date actually one of my favorite bosses still. And I said, mm -hmm. Alex, I want to start an intern program. And he said, why? You know, I don't want to pay a bunch of newbies to do anything. Like I run, <laughs> I'm a CFO. And I said, well, let's think of it this way. If we pay 10 interns, $15 an hour, eight hours a week, you know, that's what the cost is. And we're going to, and I suggest that we pay them also for their, we give them a stipend for their Metro pass because this was in New York City. And we give them a two, two lunch, so $30, $15 a day for, for two lunches because that's when we gave benefits for the team for lunches. And I said, we're going to get X, Y, and Z out of productivity. And I actually went through each of the teams that had requested an intern if I was to do this and went through and talked about how much productivity we were going to have. And by removing some of this lower level work from some of our paid employees who are paid 50, 60, $70,000 a year, they were getting bogged down in this lower work. And so what did it look like for these employees to have the bandwidth to do this much higher tier work and have this other work trusted in somebody in their team, somebody they could mentor? And so I built out the financial model, which ended up saving us probably about five or six full-time employees who we would be playing wow. benefits to, who we would be paying additional support to who we do parental leave for, for mm -hmm. just having three months worth of summer interns, which we ended up actually hiring 32% of our intern class once they graduated from college. So also it saved us a ton of money and a ton of time on recruitment. As I was an HR team of one, I was also a recruitment team of one. And so for me, being able to just call upon those individuals who we had spent three months of training and development and mentorship, it became a cost savings. And so mm -hmm. that specific cost center, cost savings or revenue producer, I battle all the time. And I always think about, you know, if somebody, the average, I would say employee in New York City in a startup is making $100,000 a year, no benefits, just base salary. Mm -hmm. The average millennial leaves a company after a year, year and a half. And I'm generalizing here. So, mm -hmm. you know, work with me. If it takes approximately 
50% of somebody's salary, upwards of 100%, depending on their role, to rehire, retrain, and get somebody in that space. When you think about attrition numbers, if you're able to retain that employee for an extra year, you're saving $100,000 in recruitment costs. If you're able to save five employees, 500000 So when you start doing the math in terms of what are you investing in learning and development? What are you investing in DEI? How are you investing in HR and the core competencies HR folks need? What are you saving on the other end? And ultimately, the biggest number to talk about is attrition and retention. And when you do that math, which is honestly, you know, especially executives don't often think of it that way. They think about the spend you're using. But when you look at the savings, because it happens long term, you don't realize that you have to spend $100,000 to replace somebody until they leave. And you're like, oh, crap, that person left with two years of institutional knowledge. What is institutional yeah. knowledge worth, especially in really specific roles? So I would say, if anything, HR, the biggest change, and I hope it continues to change and evolve, is HR needs to be part of strategy from day one. Yes. Your first hire should be an HR person. I don't care if they're just out of college or super advanced. Depending on how you want to scale your organization, HR has to be in the strategy, in the foundation from day one. If they are not in those strategic conversations, your organization is going to lose time and time again because your HR folks are going to switch because they don't feel valued. You're, you're going to lose employees and retention issues are going to be you know a pain in the butt. You're going to have glass door reviews that are going to be awful. And if you look at any of those like three, two, one star companies, those reviews are tough to, to stomach and really tough to change. And so when you think about HR strategy, you also have to think about brand. It's intrinsically linked with brand. And more than ever, when we're in this Instagram culture that we live in, brand is intrinsically tied with everything. So, you know, bringing it back to basics, HR has to be a part of strategy from day one, just like anybody else in operations or business or any of the other fields, HR has to be involved. So many great points there, Jess. Uh, and, and one of the things that we often say at Sherm is with, with no money, there's no mission. And so to have HR folks in at the beginning, and as you said, kind of to helping with the strategy uh, makes all the difference in the world. And I think the way that you were able to articulate to your supervisor how this financially makes sense uh, is what I think not just HR professionals, but people in general, when they're trying to make uh, business decisions or convince usually their managers or higher ups uh, of how the how they should proceed is often a really, really good, great way to go with things. So, so many good things there. I do want to shift gears just a little bit. Uh, and as you mentioned before, kind of with impact uh, and the impact that HR professionals can have on a specific employee. And I, I loved it. Use me as an example, because uh, you're right. It did make a huge difference in my world to, you know, to get to spend an extra couple of weeks at home with with my son and still being able to kind of be a part of, of his day to day life. Uh, and, and so many other things that over the last you know year, year and a half, because 2020 was was a year for all years, right? With so much stuff going on. So I kind of want to talk a little bit about those societal influences uh, and things that that impacted the workplace, including racial injustice. Uh, we had an election, so divisive politics, income inequality, uh, and and obviously the the pandemic, which I'm really really hoping, fingers crossed, that we're we're starting to see the end of with with some of the vaccines and some of the health uh, health things that are out right now. But the, the list could go on for for days and days of all of the things that are impacting the workplace. And so I, I really want to talk about how things have changed over the past few years, specifically on the employer side and things that the employers are doing now to make sure that they notice the employees needs uh, that previously probably went unseen and things that employers were not necessarily paying attention to five, 10, maybe 15 years ago. Yeah, 2020 was a year. And I think honestly, for HR, at the outcome of it is going to be really positive because it's ultimately going to lead to a better workplace for individuals. And I do a lot of work around accessibility. And Eric, I appreciate you sharing uh, your story with anxiety and ADHD. I do a lot of work around invisible disabilities and specific to the workplace. And so I do a lot of talking around accessibility and accessibility, not as it relates to disability, but accessibility as in Erica, Vernon, and myself, we all work differently. In order to do our best work, we all need different environments. We all need different supports, different mentors, different managers. And so when you think about accessibility, thinking about it as what does everybody need to do their best work? Mm -hmm. And I think that's the crux of what employers are starting to see and starting to make changes for is around what do my employees need to do their best work? And there's some 
you know, some changes in, you know, depending on when this episode airs, Basecamp, for example, just came out and talking about politics and, you know, society in the workplace. And frankly, there isn't a way to untie the two. Society and culture and the workplace are intrinsically linked for the rest of time. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. especially now that we are in our homes, those who are fortunate enough and have enough privilege to work from home, for those with that privilege, you know, I am here and I live next door to my mother and I'm here with my boyfriend and we have our cats and I have the side hustle work and I have my full-time work and I have chores and I have things I have to do. My entire life is here in the 700 square foot apartment and it's tied to my computer and it's tied to my cell phone. And if I get a Slack message from work at 8 p.m. and I'm on my computer for personal reasons, I'm probably going to answer it because I'm on. I don't think about it as, oh, well, this is work hours versus not work hours. So it's completely changed our entire environment, again, for those who are privileged enough to be able to work from home. And so, you know, you can't, you know, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. You know, it's out, it's here. And so now the progressive employers, and I think the direction in which strategic employers when it comes to HR are going to go is saying, okay, let's look at accessibility. Now that our employees are everywhere doing everything for all the reasons, how can we make sure that productivity doesn't fall? How can we Mm -hmm. make sure that, you know, because a lot of employers are actually saying their employees are more productive because they're just on, on, on. I don't have a commute anymore. I immediately brush my teeth and hop on my computer. I had a 45 minute commute, if not longer in New York. So mm-hmm. how can I make sure that things are accessible in order to get the best work out of my employees in a way that doesn't promote burnout? So I retain them because talent is at a premium right now, everywhere. And mm-hmm. so people are being recruited left and right. Attrition is always going to be an issue. But right now, Individuals are leaving employers who aren't being strategic. They're saying, I need an employer who sees me, not sees work me. Vernon, you mentioned bringing your full self to work. You know, bringing your full self to work, you know, bringing your black self versus your male self versus your father self versus your whatever age you are self. Those are many facets. Those are a lot of intersectional pieces. Mm -hmm. And those different selves need different elements of accessibility. And if an employer can't accommodate, not only accommodate that, but proactively say, what can I do to support you? People are going to leave. I love so many things that you just said. I have so many notes to follow up on. I really love what you said about the difference between talking about disability versus ability, especially, you know, and you had kind of pointed to invisible disabilities. I would really love to see this conversation around diversity and inclusion start to make its way into talking about how oftentimes things that we consider negatives that people have, like a quote unquote disability or, you know, negatives related to, you know, sometimes employers will consider parenthood a a negative, right? Because they have to share their time with work and their children. I would love to see us change, just totally flip the script on how we talk about this. And instead of calling them these disabilities or these things that take them away from work, what are we gaining by having people who have these experiences? What are we gaining by having people who have anxiety or ADHD (laughs) in my case, or who are parents? To your point earlier, Jess, where you had said, you know, it's a unique benefit in my viewpoint um, for for organizations to have more people that have a variety of ways that they do bring themselves to work. And then I think the next step, as you mentioned, is, okay, now that we have diverse people coming from all these diverse backgrounds, uh, no matter what that looks like, you know, also in terms of, I think, accounting for, you know, income level and education level. And, you know, we've talked about people who have been previously incarcerated and the unique Mm -hmm. value that they bring and so on and so forth, really flipping, like I said, the script on figuring out where their unique value truly lays. The other point I want to follow up on is your example of Basecamp. And I was about to bring that up, kind of segueing into this conversation around HR's role in addressing these workplace challenges. And just, you know, for the audience, in case you haven't heard, an organization called Basecamp, uh, they, their co-founders, there's two founders, they came out with sort of like an open blog post to their employees last week 
and essentially said uh, they announced a couple of organizational changes, but the really big one that people are pretty upset about, and I think rightly so, and I'm curious to get your thoughts here more in depth, Jess, they basically said that any controversial topics, including politics, conversations about anything challenging or controversial and political cannot be done through company communications. Uh, So they basically said, this is divisive, this is harmful, and we don't believe in it, and you can't have these discussions at work. And, you know, a lot of people, of course, came out saying, wow, (laughs) like, um, as of 7 p.m. on May 3rd, 40% of their workforce has quit and openly quit on Twitter and sharing that they're looking for new roles. Wow. Wow. And it's uh, the company, they had like 58 people. So 40, I mean, 40% is big no matter what you do, but with 58 people, that makes an impact. That does make, I think another really interesting part of this story, and I'm going to transition, thank you for noting that, Jess, but another interesting part of this story is they said in that blog post too that it was just the co-founders who made these decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, They didn't say whether they consulted HR or not. And maybe maybe they did, but also they're the co-founders of the business, right? They did say though pretty explicitly that this is how the this was the direction that they wanted to take as a company. And so with that, Jess, I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts in general about, you know, what is HR's role in influencing and protecting, right? the workforce and the business, especially as it pertains to these like very difficult conversations? So I think just like everything in our society, we have to go back to how it was built. What is the system built on? And the system was built for old white dudes. You know, think of Mm -hmm. Mad, the TV show Mad Men. The systemic pieces are built for old white dudes. And I've got some great old white dudes in my life. So no shade to them. But when a system is built for one type, mm-hmm. an able-bodied, cisgendered white man between the ages of 23 and 63, mm-hmm. you're leaving out a lot of people. And when founders, seemingly unilaterally, whether they did or not, make decisions, it's, it's playing directly into the system that benefits them. Mm-hmm. You know, As you were talking, I said, what isn't political these days? Literally, yeah. what isn't political? Yeah. What isn't societal? You know, how do you not remove Black Lives Matter from any conversation about systemic racism or systemic anything? And that becomes political. And the second you say no, and this is the other thing about any workforce, the second you say no, everybody's going to do it. You know, Vernon, I would love to know when you tell your three-year-old, no, you can't do it. I'm assuming the first thing he wants to do is do whatever you said no to. Of course. (laughs) You know, we're all still have that element. Followed by a why. Why? (laughs) And exactly. And what was the reasoning? What was the impact that the so-called issue is having? And I want to know, that's where I want to always start, is what is the impact? And, you know, frankly, they should have done a focus group. They should have taken a group of employees and say, if we were to change this, what would this look like? You know, something like that should come from the employees. The employees should say, hey, actually, as a group, you know, we were getting into a lot of issues and we did trainings and we did all of these things to be proactive about it. And we still couldn't come to a resolution. And so we have decided as a collective that Basecamp is no longer going to allow for political conversations as defined by as X, you know, because you have to put a definition behind it, that we're no longer going to do this so that we have a common collected workplace. I don't know. But that's not reality. Reality is, is we are immersed in it. It is in, again, our hands and our phones, in the mouths of our children. You know, it is on the murders that are happening and the genocides that are happening. Mm-hmm. It is the shortages of vaccines in India. You know, you can't tell people they can't converse, let alone in a workplace where they're spending a third of their lives. Mm-hmm. And HR's should be updated role is to protect, to find the balance of protecting the individual's while still moving forward with the best practices and the best reasoning for the business. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, when you truly look at the issue, what's best for the employee is very frequently best for the business. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of how you process the problem. Absolutely. Yes, 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 yes. And ultimately, if you bring in HR at the beginning, HR is going to help you succeed financially because it is a cost center. 
but also as a saving center if you do it right and if you're strategic about it. And these founders consistently are screwing themselves over by not bringing HR in early and often. And I always say, and you know, I'm biased because I run the Rise Journey and it is a consultancy. If you don't know what you're doing or if your HR person doesn't have expertise, bring in outside counsel. Bring in somebody who can say, actually, this is a really good way forward or here's three options. Here's the pros and cons of each because it is worth that financial investment to make sure you're doing it correctly. And if you're not doing correctly, and especially the founders and especially the white founders, own it, make space for the error you made, talk about it, and move on and say, we're moving on and this is how we're pivoting. There is no, nothing wrong with having an error or a misjudgment. As long as you acknowledge it, you recognize the impact regardless of your intent and you have to move forward. So I, I'm so glad that we have the opportunity to kind of start to define many of these issues and, and challenges. Uh, and, and I say start because any one of these topics we could probably spend Years at on. least a, you know, an entire <laughs> series on, like let alone an episode, like an entire series we could probably spend on any one of these topics. Uh, and so I'm, I'm glad we start to get to define some of those challenges because then we can kind of shift because usually challenges could also be considered as opportunities. Totally. And that's kind of where I want to go with things now uh, and specifically our podcast, which is geared towards, you know, students and emerging professionals. Uh, and when we think about those, you know, again, challenges or opportunities that we just discussed, Jess, can you tell us a little bit why now, more than ever, is the <laughs> ideal time for emerging professionals and students to transition or start a career in human resources? Uh, why isn't now just that that critical time period that they can really branch out and do something maybe a little bit different and make the world a better place? I love that. I'm over here smiling, big grin on my face, because there is change going on in the world. It is not happening fast enough. It's not systemic enough yet. But- Business happens first because money, we live in a capitalistic society that money runs the world regardless if we like it or not. If you want to make impact, HR is the best place to make impact. Nonprofit, for-profit, big or small. If you want to impact people, if you want to change lives, you work in HR. And this is part of the evolution of HR as I've seen it in the last 15 years. And again, happening at a more rapid pace. You know, Black Lives Matter has ignited not only a fire around systemic racism and other issues in society, but it has lit a fire under the butt of HR folks in a great way. Not all can see it right now, but there's tremendous opportunity. And I would say anybody who has an interest in making the lives of people better from a policy, from a systemic in a small way, growing in a bigger way, get into HR, get into people ops. And you don't have to study it in school if you don't want to. I would say go out and get, you know, a, do a certificate program. Like there's a ton, I'm not going to name any organizations, but there's a ton of certificate programs out there. Ask your current employer to invest in you if you're employed and want to switch. Get mentors in the space. Start talking about things. Start your thought leadership because HR is changing. And there are some pieces, you know, payroll and compensation and benefits do need some like hardcore, very specific HR pieces. But people ops, and it's transitioning from HR to people ops, make a sexier title is about people and it's about listening and it's about being the HR business partner and it's about digging in and building equity. And if you wanna build equity within an organization, you gotta do it from HR. If you wanna build systemic positive change, you have to do it from HR. If you wanna hear people's problems and learn about what they're going through and really understand, you should do it through HR, at least if HR is done well. Mm -hmm. There is so much possibility. And when I see my HR professionals, I see a hell of a lot of white women, myself included. Again, a homogenous group. If you are a person of color, if you are identify as not as a woman and you want to get in HR, go for it. Now is the time. Get your voices heard and get the voices of the people and the elements and the intersectionality that you represent. Get those voices heard more importantly. I have my perspective. I'm always going to have bias. I'm always going to have blinders on for some things. Even though, you know, I'm aware and talking about this all the time, it doesn't eliminate my bias. Get in there. Tell me how I'm right. Tell me how I'm wrong. Tell me how you want to create change and partner with me. That is so valuable. I am never going to know the perspective of you, Vernon, as a black man. Come and talk to me about it. Let's make change together is, you know, and I would say if you want to make change faster, you know, start with startups, start with smaller organizations where you can get in and dig in. 
but also recognize that not all organizations are ready for that change. And when you're interviewing, and this is where I think there's a tremendous amount of power in interviewing, especially for young professionals, is you hold so much power in your hands that you don't necessarily know yet. And that would be advice I would give to myself 10 years ago, is there's so much power in that energy and that want and that drive that an employer is lucky to have you when you are fully committed and you are there. So own that. Don't take ego in it. You know, be humble about it. Make sure you're talking you know, a good game and making about action and strategy and financial figures and all of those pieces. But there is power in what you want to be doing and the impact you're going to have and the perspectives you bring. And don't ever doubt that. Wow. That was beautiful. Actually, that is a wonderful segue uh, into a question that I wanted to ask you just about what personality traits or skills or characteristics you think awesome HR professionals need to have. You know, one of the things that we have talked a lot about on this show is the the power in some formal education and and uh, various, you know, certificates or certification programs and the like. But I think that they're, you know, also coming from a kind of learning and development background. I think there's a lot of power in those soft skills or in those quote unquote soft qualities, which I hate calling them that, but that's okay. Me too. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Um, uh, we'll call them power skills. That's usually what I go with um, because they are. They're they're incredibly powerful skills to have in the workplace and can can give a lot of power to ourselves. So anyway, circling back, what are some personality traits or power skills that you think HR professionals should have in order to be more successful? So I'm going to take this back a step first. When I was 16, I was fortunate enough to move to the island of Grenada in the Caribbean. Um, My mom was a college professor. She wanted to take a sabbatical and we went to the island in the Caribbean that had fresh water that we could drink. That was the big priority. I was 16. I was a little bit rebellious. I was homeschooling myself, very frustrated with my mother because, you know, I was 16. And so I spent a lot of time doing whatever I wanted as part of my education and whatever and friends I made. The big thing there for me was we were the only white family living on the island. We were the only white people on the island who didn't come from cruise boats. We were the only white folks who were doing everything, you know, from taking the local buses People were pointing fingers at me. People wanted to touch my skin. People were talking about me. People knew us all over the island. They would see us and they'd be like, oh, you're the white family living over in, in New, you know, in the, the zone. We were known <laughs> everywhere. We were celebrities. And at 16, it was really unnerving. And I was like, I just want to live my own life. I want to do my own things. I want to get in trouble. But everybody here knows me. And it actually allowed my parents to keep a little bit of an eye on me unknowingly at the time. And ended up being probably one of the most influential times in my life. Um, I wrote my college essay about my neighbor um, or my neighbors who were four-year-old twins who I fell in absolute love with and adore and, you know, painted them endlessly and took endless photos of them as because I was also an art major in college. It was just tremendously impactful. And Mm -hmm. when I went back to school in rural New Hampshire, where it is about as white Christian Catholic as you can possibly get, and (laughs) we do have, you know, heritage, not hate flags hanging around here right now, which is frustrating for Mm me. And I went back and I was able to see all of this privilege I had. I was able to see the education that I was so spiteful about. I was able to see, you know, I had hot water. We took cold water showers the entire time I lived there. I had hot water. I just like some really basic concept. The fact that I could write a college essay about my experiences, the fact that I had the ability to go, that my mother had the foresight and the want and the ability. And it really changed my perspective on a lot of things in life. And I, again, Mm -hmm. I directly attribute this to the work I do in DEI. I wasn't only. I got to experience being the only in a way that wasn't always pleasant and wasn't always fun. Sometimes it was great. Other times it wasn't. And I didn't really know at the time what it meant. Reflecting back, I can see more. Mm -hmm. And when I think about being an HR professional and how it impacts me today and what I would advise and not necessarily personality traits or skills, but HR professionals need to bring themselves the good, the bad, the ugly, the everything in between the experiences. When I talk to my black employees, when I talk to people who I work with, 
I feel like I'm more able to relate and I tell them why or why not. I also tell them that, holy hell, I've probably done a lot of microaggressions and not realized it because I also lived in this place and felt like I was black sometimes when I am very much not. But I can reflect and I can think about these things because I had experiences. And so I would say for anybody more so than a personality trait or something specific is have that EQ, have the emotional intelligence to be able to reflect upon your history, have the ability to reflect upon your education. What does it mean? What's an opinion versus a perspective that you've created or had? And how do you talk about that in an interview setting? Because ultimately, it is your perspectives and it is your experiences that are going to make you better at the profession, regardless of if you are the whitest white person or the blackest black person or the most indigenous indigenous person or whomever and anything and all the isms and all the, the identifying markers that we can place upon ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's about how you speak about it and how you talk about it and how you relate to others who may or may not have those identifying markers. And part of that is, you know, those power skills, those soft skills, but really like EQ and empathy, the mm-hmm. ability to have reflection and listen to others when they're saying things that might not feel great in terms of feedback, how you respond to feedback, especially in HR is so key because nobody likes getting frustrating feedback or negative feedback. But if you can hear it and say, I'm going to need a data process. Can I get back to you? And I will book time on your calendar in two days because I want to continue talking about this, but I need time to process. Mm -hmm. And what does that look like versus reacting and lashing out and potentially damaging a relationship forever, which you cannot do in HR, or at least you you can't do well. Mm -hmm. So really thinking about like, who are you as an individual And how do you bring that to whomever you're interviewing with? How do you bring that to every interview? Even if you're not hired, how do you bring that to every potential employer? How do you affect the interviewer in the way you might affect, you know, potential employees? I think that, you know, a girl who came from rural New Hampshire, I grew up with pet sheep and had a million rabbits and went (laughs) trick-or-treating with the sheep, you know, to go to school and study theater and then end up in New York City because my mom kicked me out of my house in New Hampshire. Thanks, mom, for that one. Um, And moved in with a friend and lived on a friend's couch for three months. I am extroverted beyond extroverted. I am no BS. I am, you know, whatever I am, that doesn't make me the best HR professional. That makes me an HR professional. You know, my counterparts are more introverted and more introspective. That doesn't make them the best. It makes them an an HR professional. It's not about a specific thing, but it's about knowing yourself enough and knowing that you constantly are evolving to know yourself more and how you bring that to the people you're serving, the impact you want to have. If you can't know yourself and can't reflect with yourself and on these issues, how are you expected to support others? And there is no one magic message or skill. It really is about people. And people are changing. The world is changing. How do you keep up? Can you have, I would say if there's one skill, it's agility, even more so than flexibility. How can you pivot? How can you take a problem and say, oh, that didn't work. Switching gears, going over here. This is what Mm -hmm. didn't work. This is what did work. How do I shift? And being able to shift and talk about it and have that agility, that's the one skill that everybody should work on for the future of work, for the future of HR. What's that agility that you have? I'm going to, I'm going to pause this just for a second, but kind of build off of what you're talking about there, Jess, with skill development and and professional development. And I want to make sure that our listeners are aware uh, of a fantastic opportunity for SHRM's annual conference, which is in Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, And I want to make sure I get these dates right. The conference is going to take place September 9th through the 12th. Uh, Students can register either in person for an experience or virtual experience. Uh, There's a special rate just for students. $425 for the in-person, $280 for the uh, virtual experience. Uh, And just so you're all aware, if you are attending in person, my man Chris Lopez and I are planning the student experience, so you know that it's going to be on point. You certainly Mm -hmm. do not want to miss that. Uh, If you want more information, you can visit annual.sherm.org for uh, for that additional information or to register. Uh, So please, if if you're looking for some of those professional development opportunities uh, that Jess just talked about and so much more, annual is going to be off the chains make sure you're you're there or attending in person. And it's so important, Vernon, building on that, you know, find the events that speak to you, find the people that speak to you, find the moments that speak to you and use them for all of their worth. Because not everything speaks for everybody and works for everybody, but finding those pieces and finding a mentor, finding a person, watch every TED talk and every speech they've ever done, go to these events, 
talk to them. You know, we're not superstars. Anybody, whenever I speak, I'm always so flattered when somebody comes to talk to me afterwards because it means you want to learn more. And my guess is if you ask for them to be your mentor, two out of three times, you're going to get a yes. But gaining those experiences, again, that's part of opening yourself up is so vital for HR because you cannot stay stagnant. You have to keep learning. You have to keep evolving. And part of that learning does involve professional development credits. And so I know some of our listeners are tuning in just for those professional development credits and for this fantastic content. And the activity code for this episode, which is worth one professional development credit or PDC, is 22PSYNS. Again, that number is 22-P as in Papa, S as in Sierra, Y as in Yankee, N as in November, S as in Sierra. I got to get my Sherm credits too. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So Jess, I know you've already sort of touched on some, I think, fantastic advice for emerging HR professionals, students who are thinking about going into an HR career, um, or, you know, folks who are even transitioning careers into HR. I think you've noted some really, really interesting examples and pieces of how to prepare, you know, for tomorrow's challenges, uh, especially that piece about agility and working on being more agile. I did, though, want to create a space for you to add anything else about what you think folks who are going into HR or who even are in HR can do now to prepare better for tomorrow's challenges and opportunities? Seek diverse perspectives, amplify diverse voices, and being an ally is a verb. And I, whether whatever your demographic markers are, and I try to use that versus, you know, I I default like most people to race because it's an easy invisible piece, but I'll use myself as the example. I am white. I am female. I consistently say, whose perspective am I not hearing? And this might be in any role. If you're looking to transition to HR, you know, make sure that that's part of it, is that you're getting those voices so that when you speak on behalf of them or behalf of a community, that you're speaking authentically, that you said, I have listened to these people. I think that is the most important piece. And also know that HR in terms of kind of next stages, the roles are evolving. You know, when you talk about employee experience, when you talk about learning and development and the intersection of DEI with all of that, there's a lot more opportunities than just straight up HR. And so again, finding the pieces that work well for you, that align with your skill sets, that align with your personality type, because they're all intersectional and they all need to support each other. And so being open to trying new pieces within it is great. And I know, you know, again, even within the HR space, I rely on my HR generalist. I rely on my head of DEI. I rely on these people to help me be aware of my blind spots and point out things that I may not have thought of. You know, that's the best collaboration. And it usually ends up in laughter because none of us take ourselves too seriously because this is about people. And, you know, HR gets a very serious and sometimes a very negative rap. But like, we're just a bunch of people just like everybody else. And so remembering that if you're not in HR, remembering that if you are in HR and you're blaming yourself for things, but work is changing. And so, you know, go along for the ride, figure out skills, learn stuff, take a LinkedIn lesson, take a SHRM course, take a SHRM webinar, whatever, you know, find those gaps in your own work where you want to learn more and go for it. And don't be afraid to not know something. So that that's fantastic. And I, and I certainly appreciate, Erica, you creating that space to, you know, to, to provide the opportunity to, to discuss uh, some of those, those, those meaningful points. The challenges and the opportunities are always going to be there. And it's kind of what we're doing, what we do with it. You know, how do we respond to it? And so I, I certainly appreciate those, those thoughts and, and those comments. Uh, just as we wrap things up and we're, we certainly appreciate your time um, and all of your insights, uh, we'll get you out of here kind of on this question. And I want to, I want to give a, a study in a 2019 study, 90% of millennials said it was either somewhat important or very important to them that their work have a positive impact on the world. So given all of your experiences and all of the stories that you've shared, I want to give you a chance to kind of shine a spotlight on a particular moment or, you know, a a part of your work where you felt your contributions were having a greater impact on the world. And and tell us a little bit more about that. I absolutely love this. I briefly did a stint in the nonprofit space and was very frustrated by the bureaucracy of it. And so I always say, like, I'm a nonprofit girl at heart. 
but it, I can't work in that space. And so doing good and providing good for the world is so key. I am a millennial or I identify as a millennial. My current employer, Quartet Health, um, helps people get the mental health care that they need. Personally, the mission lives in me. I love that it's a for-profit, but mission-driven. And so when I think about the work, sometimes it's really hard for me to connect my work with helping people get the care they need. But then I look at my conversations from day to day and my partnership with those who are directly on the phone lines with patients or getting them growth opportunities or development or talking them through an L&D opportunity. And I know I'm having the impact. I know I'm getting people to care. You know, we've had some initiatives where we've donated money to support getting more therapists of color into, into the roles because there's a severe mental health care desert when it comes to providers of color, when it comes to providers who are LGBTQIA+, when it comes to any other often marginalized community or underrepresented community. And so knowing that I can work at an organization that can have that impact, and again, just one person or a million people, you know, it makes a difference. Therapy has made a huge difference in my life since from the beginning to, the, to now. And so knowing that I can support people in that. So bringing it back to businesses, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a nonprofit to do good. You know, when you're looking at jobs or if you want to have impact, what are they doing for their corporate social responsibility? How can you be a part of that through HR? You know, what kind of organizations do you support? Looking at supplier diversity, looking at, you know, internship programs, who you're bringing through the ranks. There's a lot of way to, ways to think about doing good within an organization that also help the bottom line of the organization. And I do think that it is important to think about both because doing good is important, but doing sustainable good is more important in my book, especially when it comes to being an HR professional. Absolutely. So many good points and insights. Jess, thank you so much for your time today. I found myself like getting totally lost in our discussion slash taking little notes here and there um, uh, and then remembering that we're having a conversation because I I could listen all day. But also you just have <laughs> a lot of really awesome points. I think you mentioned a lot of great tidbits about, you know, why, again, now more than ever, things are changing in a vast array of ways. So thank you for diving into that. Thank you for sharing your Agreed. personal examples. Yeah. I found it incredibly inspirational. Well, thank you for having me and letting me use both of you, um, especially Vernon and your and your, your son as examples. Um, it's always helpful for me to work off of real people when talking things through. Anytime. And with that, we're going to bring this episode of Career Compass to a close. We'd like to thank SHRM and the SHRM Foundation for providing us with this platform. But more importantly, we'd like to thank all of you for joining us and hope you stay with us throughout the season as we continue to discuss more topics like this one. For more exclusive content resources and tools to help you succeed in your career, consider joining SHRM as a student member. You can visit us at sherm.org forward slash students to learn more about being a part of a community of over 300,000 HR and business leaders who impact the lives of over 115 million employees worldwide. And if you liked what you heard, we'd love your subscription. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or just wherever you listen to podcasts. And do you have a topic that you think we should cover or maybe a guest you think we should hear from? And if you do, we'd love to hear it. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us. We do check this email account. It is careercompasspodcast at sherm.org. Lastly, are you looking for more work or career-related podcasts? Check out All Things Work and Honest HR at sherm.org forward slash podcast. Thank you again for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Career Compass.